Hey there, I'm Joey Dean, lead pastor of South Lakes Church in Oklahoma City. At South Lakes Church, we exist to be radically devoted to God, relentlessly committed to true community, and remarkably passionate for the lost. We hope your faith is strengthened and you grow closer to Jesus as you listen this morning. Now let's jump into this week's message. in the mighty name of Jesus. And my simple prayer this morning is this. Regardless of our surroundings, regardless of our health state, regardless of what kind of weeks we're coming off of, God, would you make yourself very real to us this morning? Would you speak into our heart languages this morning? Would you speak into our brokenness? Would you speak into our joy? And would you make yourself known to us this morning? God, may we walk away, whether it's on the couch or in this room, saying, you know, it was really good to carve out time to spend at the throne room of heaven just hearing from your spirit. Let me pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. So here's what we're doing. We're walking through the Bible, right? And so um, so I want to kind of catch you up every week. We'll do a quick Polaroid snapshot of where we've been, all right? So we're going to keep building on each other. So if you're taking notes this morning, this is kind of where this comes into play. We start off in the beginning, and we're simply seeing that the foundation of the world or the foundation of civilization is being laid down in the beginning of scripture. We see that God creates the world and we see that by the time he gets to the seventh day and he rests, he just looks around and he sees that everything he's created is very, very good. In chapter three of Genesis, we see that sin is introduced through disobedience because Adam and Eve chose themselves and what they desired more than choosing God and what God desired. And from that point forward, from Genesis three on, we see that sin is running rampant in the world. In fact, it gets so bad so quickly, but by the time you get to Genesis chapter 6, God looks at the world, he sees the wickedness of man, and it says that God actually is sorrowful, he regrets that he ever created mankind. And so he sends a flood upon the earth, and he kills them all outside of a small remnant A family, one righteous man in the world, Noah, and his family just got to ride along his coattails of saying, well, Noah can't repopulate the planet by himself, so he brings his wife, and he brings his kids and their wives, and he saves a remnant of the animals, and at the end of that horrific event where God destroys practically everything, the waters subside, and the world begins to repopulate again, and what did the people do? They 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 gather together in this valley and they say, we should build a tower to God, to the heavens, so that people will marvel at what we can do. And then it says that the Lord comes down one day. That's a metaphor. He doesn't really come down. He's already present everywhere. But he looks down at what's going on and he sees what man is doing. And he's, he's like, man, we can't let man continue to do this. And there's a whole def- another sermon on why that is. So what does the Lord do? He confuses their language. And all of a sudden you wake up the next morning and someone is speaking a completely different dialect than you. So what happens is the people congregate together in the dialects that they can understand. And then they disperse across the land. And sometime after the dispersal of people at the, at the Tower of Babel, 
right? After the flood, there's a gentleman by the name of Job that enters into the scene. You spent the life, you're doing the Bible reading plan the last couple weeks. You've been reading about Job and been thinking to yourself, well, my life is nowhere near as horrible as his was, right? But yet we've understood that in the midst of Job's suffering, that God has shown himself to be a merciful and compassionate God. And last week we learned that no matter what we're going through, that the same God that was merciful and compassionate on Job is the same God that is merciful and compassionate on us. When we come out of Job, we go in to Genesis chapter 12, and the narrative begins to shift because God has created the foundation of the world. He's created the foundation of civilization. People are now scattered around the world in their own dialects, right? And now he begins to focus on the foundation of a nation, the foundation of a nation. And in particular, God begins to lay the groundwork for his redemptive plan on how he's going to right the wrongs of sin and how he's going to redeem mankind back to himself because of what happened in Genesis 3 when sin came in and disrupted things. And so he starts with a man named Abram. And so if you're taking notes this morning, all right, or if you're looking on you version, this is kind of where your fill in the blanks start coming into play. He starts to build a nation with a man by the name of Abram. Now we don't have time to, to read all about Abram in Genesis 12, 13, 14, and 15. So let me give you a really quick snapshot about Abram. Number one, Abram is the descendant of Noah. Okay, which makes sense. Everyone descends from, from Noah in some way, right? But in particular, he's a descendant of Noah's son, Shem. And he grows up, Abram grows up in a city called Ur. And Ur is 50 miles southeast of this capital called Babylon. And if you don't know anything about Babylon, just know that when you see the name Babylon in the Bible, that is always synonymous with evil or sin or just corruption. And so Abram is literally in the middle of where corruption is and where the, the, the height of sin is, if you will. He marries a woman by the name of Sarai. The problem is that Sarah can't have kids. She's barren, and this will play a huge role coming up in the story. And while he is living in the city of Ur, God actually calls to Abram, and he calls him to leave everything behind and to go to a land that God will show him. And so this is kind of where we begin to, to, to get a couple of our stories mixed up because our, what we think happened is that God calls Abram and then he gets up and he automatically leaves. But that actually isn't how that goes down in the story. See, what happens is that after God calls Abram to leave in the land of Ur, Abram packs up his family, packs up his dad and his nephew and, his, and all of his family, and they travel 600 miles north to a city by the name of Haran, and they settle there. So I've got this map here. So we've got Ur, which is down there at the beginning of the dots, the, fir uh, the first on, the, on your right side, or your left side, I guess, my right side, or whatever. And then he travels up the Euphrates River, all right, he passes Babylon, he passes Mari, he gets up to Haran, and he parks in Haran with his family until his dad dies. And when his dad dies, he finally obeys God, and he packs up his household, he takes his wife and his servants and all of his things, and he takes his nephew Lot, and he heads out. And by this point, he's 75 years old, he still has no children. And all he knows is that God told him several years earlier, leave everything behind and go to a land that I'll show you. 
So what does he do? We see on the map, he, can, he travels south and he goes to a place called Shechem. So you see Shechem is right underneath Canaan. Canaan's in the green. And at Shechem, God shows God, uh, Abram all this land. And God promises Abram that he was going to give his family this specific piece of land. That's in your notes next. He says, I'm going to promise to give you this specific piece of land. But there's a big problem with this, is that Abram still has no kids. His wife is still barren. But what Abram does is he builds an altar there at Shechem for two purposes. Number one, to worship God. And secondly, to commemorate this moment where God says, I'm going to do this. All right, now you're caught up. So here's where we are. Genesis 15, we're going to begin reading in verse 1. It says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Now, what, what are after these things? Uh, uh, Lot got captured, and it's, it's a story. You should go back and, and read it. But he goes and he, he rescues his nephew from captivity. It says, Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to Abram, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And so we see Abraham and God just have an honest conversation. Abraham's like, hey, you promised me all this land, and that's really cool, but I don't have any kids. So I guess it's going to have to be my servant, Eleazar. He's going to have to be my heir. And God says, no, that's, that's not how it's going to go. And so in verse 5, it says he brought him outside. And God said to Abram, look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. And then God said to Abram, so shall your offspring be. And Abraham believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And God said to Abram, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But Abram said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? So God promises this great reward for Abram. He says, your family is going to be huge, and it's not going to be your servant. And he promises that your descendants, your, your offspring will be as numerous as the stars in the sky. And in one of the most famous verses that we know today, it's not the one we're going to be parked on this morning. In verse 6, it says that Abram believed the Lord, and God counted it to him as righteousness. And so Abram believed God's promises. And that word for believed is, is the word where we have faith. That comes from in, our, in the English language, all right? And so we see here that the same way that God entered into the family or that Abram entered into the family of God is the same way that we enter into the family of God is through faith. And so faith has always been the pivotal uh, hinge, if you will, that everything uh, spins on. And so Abram believes God. Okay, you're going to give me this land. And even though he did believe, though, Abram still asked God for some assurance, and he says, all right, I get it, but can you show me? Now, at this point, I don't think there's anything wrong with what Abram said. I think we want this all the time. Like, God, I trust you, but man, if you could give me some sort of sign or if you could do something just to say this is the right way. But God is never obligated to answer Abram's request, nor is he obligated to answer our requests, right? But he does this time. And what happens is absolutely incredible. Let's pick up in verse 9. 
It says, God said to Abram, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And Abram brought God all these. He cut them in half, laid each half over against the other, but Abram did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. And as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age and they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete." And when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying, to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Gergesites, and the Jebusites. And so what's going on here is something very unique that we really can't wrap our minds around because we don't have anything that's like this. So in order to get us to understand this, I want to give you a little bit of a history lesson into what's on the screen here, ancient covenants. we got to talk about what's going on here because what God is doing is first he gives Abraham and says, listen, I'm, I'm telling you, your descendants are going to take over this land, but here's what's going to happen. They're actually going to be in captivity, and, he, and God just lays out the, the, the prophetic word that they're going to be slaves in Egypt for 400 years, and then they come out. And of course, we know the whole story, and we know that that came true. But he promises Abram, listen, you will not go into captivity. You're going to die at a rich old, yeah, a rich old age, and you're going to be great. But then God does something that is so it's common in what happened, but what transpired during this common transaction has never happened before, okay? See, when you took an oath or when you entered into a contract with some, someone, you didn't sign a piece of paper like we do today, right? Like you go and, and, you, and you sign for a car, right? And you sign the loan and you promise, I'm going to pay back monthly payments or, or I'll pay the lump sum or whatever I'm going to do, and I'm going to walk out with this car and we make a contract with the dealership or with the bank who we're signing the contract with. That's how we do oaths today or that's how we enter into contracts today. But that is a very weak and easily dismissible thing to do. I mean, our society has shown us how many times do I have to turn on the TV and there's a lawyer on the TV that says, Are you, do you need to file for bankruptcy? If you contact me today, we'll get you out of all of your debt and you can have a fresh start. Like, that tells me that really my name on a piece of paper really doesn't amount to a whole hill of beans if I can get out of it that easily. It's true. And so contracts were way different back then. So see, understand that what's going on here is what is known as a covenant ratification ceremony. Now, that's not in your notes anywhere, but if you want to jot that down, that's what's happening here. It's a covenant ratification ceremony. Or in 2022 terms, they were signing a contract. That's what they were doing here. It's a covenant ratification ceremony. And in a covenant ratification ceremony, there were always two parties who were present. 
The first one is what was known as a suzerain. Now, the suzerain was always the greater of the two parties who were entering into the contract. It was the more powerful. It was the richer. It was the one who had the bigger army, whatever. The suzerain was always the greater of the two, which means the second party, which is the vassal, was the lesser figure. And so what would happen is that when a suzerain and a vassal would enter into a covenant together, they would take an animal They would kill it, they would cut it in half, and then one of two things would happen. Either both the suzerain and the vassal would walk down the middle of the split carcasses together, or just the vassal, which was the lesser of the two, which let's just be honest, the vassal has way more to lose than the suzerain because he's the weaker of the two. So if a small country enters into a contract or a covenant with a greater country, if the small country breaks their covenant, there's a lot more ramifications for that because what's the big, the small country going to do to the big country, honestly? And so the lesser figure sometimes would walk by on his own. Regardless of who walked through, whether it was the, va- the, the suzerain and the vassal or just the vassal, when you walked through the carcasses, it signified something. It signified that a solemn commitment was being made, but that commitment came with certain requirements. And so what would happen is that the vassal would like pledge allegiance to the suzerain, And in turn, the suzerain would vow to keep the vassal safe or to come to their aid. It's kind of like the old, um, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours, all right? But when you would walk down the middle of the carcasses, not only were you making this solemn commitment, but you were also saying that if I do not keep up my end of the commitment, then the same fate that happened to the animals here where they died and they were separated, the same fate will await me. It's almost as if when a suzerain and a vassal would enter into a covenant together, they almost pronounced a self-curse on themselves, saying, you know what? The fate of these animals is the same fate that will await either the suzerain or the vassal. And at that moment, you were bound to that treaty. What is fascinating is that this is not like a, like, like a unique thing that was going on here. In fact, this was a very common way to enter into contracts, this covenant ratification ceremony. So in, in, all, in my studies, I found one of the coolest things. I've never seen this before until I started preparing for this message. In the 8th century B.C., we actually have the written documentation of a a covenant ratification ceremony that happened between the king of Assyria and the king of Armenia. And it's fascinating. So we're going to put this up on the screen. So follow along with me. It says, this spring lamb has been brought to sanction the treaty between Asherimari and Matuilu. And this head is not the head of a lamb. It is the head of Matalu. It is the head of his sons, his officials, and the people of his land. And if Matalu sins against this treaty, or if he breaks this treaty, so may, just as the head of the spring lamb is torn off, the head of Matalu be torn off. 
This shoulder is not the shoulder of a spring lamb. It is, it is the shoulder of Matalu. It is the shoulder of his sons, his officials, and the people of his land. And if Matalu sins against this treaty, so may, just as the shoulder of the spring lamb is torn out, the shoulder of Matalu, of his sons, his officials, and the people of his land be torn out. Do you see the weightiness of what happens here? When you enter into a covenant this way, in fact, I would say that this is a much more effective way of entering a contract than just signing. If the car dealership said, all right, if you do not pay your, 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 your debt back, bad things will happen to you. And if it listed out like this, the head of the lamb is not the head of the lamb. It is your head. You know, I'm like, I, I'd want to pay back the car loan. When the, when the, when the bankruptcy uh, lawyer calls, I'd be like, no, thank you. I, you. You can't pay my debt for me, all right? Like, it's just a much more effective way of entering into a contract. So check this out. When God tells Abram to go get the animals that he got, Abraham knew exactly what God was giving him instructions to do because this is a very common ceremony back in Abram's day. And so Abram knew that he was about to participate in a covenant ratification ceremony with God. But here's where it's different, is that Abram thought he knew exactly what was about to happen. But the reality is that God threw him a curveball that has never been thrown before, nor has ever been thrown again. We're going to read one of the top two or three most important texts, at least in the Old Testament. Look in verse 17. It says, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces, the pieces of the torn carcasses, the cut carcasses. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I will give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. So let's just kind of lay out what's happening here. There's a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch. This is, represents God's presence being there. And just as we would expect in any covenant ratification ceremony, God, as the suzerain, walks in between the pieces of the torn carcasses, signifying his commitment to the covenant and also to Abram. So what God was promising Abram in this moment was this, I'm going to bless you, Abram. And I'm going to be your God. But also the bigger picture is he says this, I'm also going to bring salvation to the world. But then remember, it wasn't just this is what the covenant is, but there's also ramifications if that doesn't happen. And so God in that moment is also saying, Abram, if that is not going to happen, then what God does is he invokes a curse upon himself. Now at this point, we had to be like, okay, how in the world does an omnipotent, creator of the world, how does he invoke a curse upon himself? Like, how do you do that? Well, this is kind of how I picture this. This is the best way for me to wrap my mind around this. God is saying in that moment to Abram, listen, Abram, if I do not do what I say I'm going to do, may my immutability or my inability to change, that's what immutability is, May my immutability experience mutation. 
If I don't do what I say I'm going to do, Abram, then may my immortality, may it suffer mortality. May my infinity, may it suffer limitation and finitude. May my power suffer powerlessness. And may the impossible become impossible. And God even says, may I be cut off and destroyed. If you want to carry out the covenant ratification ceremony to what's the full extent, let's go back to the 8th century BC treaty. The weightiness of what God is doing here is he's basically saying, I know you think it's impossible, but this is what's going to happen to me, Abram, if I do not commit. But then what God does is crazy because he bears the entire responsibility of that. Because he does not ask Abram to walk through the pieces. He doesn't even require Abram to walk through the pledges and the pledge the same oath. Remember, in a covenant ratification ceremony, it is unheard of for the suzerain to go through by himself. The vassal also has to enter into it. Why? Because the vassal has way more to lose than the suzerain. Even though they both take the same pledge, we know that the greater won't won't get it near as bad as what the lesser will. But when God turns around and doesn't require Abram to go through, this is what God is saying. In that moment, God is telling Abram that he was going to go through for both of them. Now, what does that mean? And why is this, why do I say this is one of the most significant texts in all the scriptures? Because in this moment, God is saying to Abram, may I be cut off if I do not fulfill my end of this bargain. Uh, That makes sense, right? The, The vassal and the suzerain, they enter the same covenant. There's a curse upon them. But by not requiring Abram to go through the ceremony himself, God is saying to Abram, may I also be cut off if you, Abram, do not fulfill your end of the bargain. So God in that moment is taking the weight of both the suzerain and the vassal, two separate requirements, and he's placing them both on his shoulder and saying, Abram, I've got this. You stay right there, buddy. I've got this. And if I fail, may I be cut off. And if I fail holding up your end of the bargain too, may I be cut off. It's like God is pronouncing a double curse on himself. Now remember, this is a covenant that was initiated by God. Even though Abram asked for it, God was under no obligation to do it. So God is the one who initiated this covenant. God is also the one who sovereignly administered this covenant. And God is the one who said, I'm going to keep both ends of the deal. And the outcome of this covenant is going to be independent of the actions of the vassal. It's going to be 100% dependent upon the actions of the suzerain. Now, here's the reason that this is, in my opinion, one of the top two or three verses, at least in the Old Testament, maybe in all of Scripture. And the reason is this is because I don't know if you can more plainly see the gospel in the Old Testament than this. So let's talk about how we see the gospel in this ceremony. You go, what's the gospel? The gospel is the death, 
the burial and the resurrection of Jesus. That he came and he died for the sins of the world and he rose from the grave proving that sin had been paid for. That's the gospel. So let's walk through this real quick. Because just as God walked through the pieces of the carcasses by himself for both parties, this is exactly what Jesus does in the gospel. Is that what Jesus does is that God undergoes the curse of the covenant himself. And you go, well, what's the curse of the covenant? The covenant that's broken is this, is that we walked away from God. We introduced sin into the world. And the consequence of that broken covenant is, is death. It's eternal separation. It's that a price has to be paid. And that's what the Old Testament is. The Old Testament is God trying to show God's pe- to show his people through sacrifices and the priesthood and, and the building of church, the, the temple and everything. Like, you can do all these things. And by the time Jesus gets there, people are scratching their heads going, I just don't know. And the gospel is God saying, I'm going to undergo the curse by sending my son to bear the punishment for sin. And so God did vow to bless Abram and the world. And he vowed so much to the point that he says, I'm going to bless you even if it means that I have to be cut off and die in the process. So remember, what does it look like when, and when, a God, when, when God is cut off and pronounces a curse upon himself? Well, his immortality, I said, would become mortality. Well, that happened with Jesus. His immutability did suffer mutation. The impossible that people thought couldn't happen, it became possible. And God, he was cut off. And the darkness did come out and enclose around him. See, the gospel is God saying to humanity, and it's up here already, is that God says, I'm going to take on the curse of the covenant for both of us. I've got this. Even though in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve walked away, and they deserve what they get because this is what happens when you walk away from God because and when sin enters into the world. He says, I got this, and I'm going to take this. Now, here's the weightiness of this, and I want you to wait until I get to the end before you throw stones, okay? Because this has some huge ramifications, especially for how we view salvation in, in our culture, of how we maybe have grown up understanding salvation to be. Because if God says through the gospel, I'm going to take on the curse of the covenant for both of us. I'm going to take care of it. Don't you worry about it. Then that means that there's only one rightful conclusion, is that salvation and our Christian faith, they are not a cooperative effort. They're not. Salvation is not God saying, I'm going to help those who are trying to help themselves first. That's not it. In fact, understand this, your salvation, if you're a believer here this morning, if you're watching online, salvation, you entering into the family of God, it is not a partnership. 
God did not look at any of us and say, I need Joey to be in my family. (laughs) I need him because I'm missing something. No, because I had nothing to offer. Salvation has nothing to do with me saying, I'm going to do my part, and then God, I expect you to do yours. So what's my part? I'm going to be a good person. I'm going to try to be a good father. I'm going to try to be a good employee. I'm going to try to be a good boss. I'm going to try to be a good neighbor. I'm going to try to read the Bible. I'm going to try to increase my level of devotion in 2022 by one step. I'm going to do all these things. And if I do these things, then God will love me so much that he just can't, he'd just be so giddy to have me on his team. That's not what the gospel is. See, salvation is not you worked for it. Salvation is actually God telling the world, listen, I'll do it all. I'm going to do it all. I'm going to do every last inch of what it takes for man to be redeemed, for man to be forgiven. I'm going to do it all. That's why Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, when Paul tells the church in Ephesus, he says this, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, a.k.a. this is not a partnership that you did your part, but it is the gift of God. It is not a result of works. Why? So that no one who's now on God's team can boast and say, I did enough that God finally said I was worthy enough to be on his team. It doesn't work that way. Because if man was left to his own vice, Scripture is very clear. Even though Jesus paved the way through salvation, Romans 3, and I quote this all the time, says that no one goes looking for God. No one. No one goes looking for God because everyone is, is, is broken to the core and they don't even know they're broken. So God has to send the Holy Spirit down and through the Holy Spirit and through the foolish preaching of the proclamation of God's word. Uh, Romans 10 tells us this, that as we preach God's word, the spirit works in the hearts of people that don't even know they're broken, that don't even know they need saving. And what's the result? The Holy Spirit goes, hey, you need to listen to this. And you go, I didn't even know I needed this. And And God's like, absolutely, you did it because I'm doing all the work. I'm letting you know you need this. I've prepared a way for you already. I've loved you enough that I was going to do all the work. And it's not dependent upon anything that you do. It's dependent upon the same thing that Abram had in Genesis 15, 6. Faith. I have faith that, God, you've done all the work, that I'm a sinner that deserves to be separated from you forever, and because you cleared the way, I have faith in your son, who took on the curse for me. And I can't boast in any of that. See, there is nothing that Abram could have done to boast in God fulfilling the covenant through him because his wife was barren. And she was in her 90s by the time she had a kid. Now, I know they lived much longer back then, but even then, in your 90s, people weren't just necessarily having babies. It just wasn't happening. It took God blessing Sarai and then through that, even, and if you don't know the story, Abram tried to fix it himself. And Sarai, his wife, said, well, why don't you marry my maid? And through my maid, you can have a kid. And Abraham, who was just a really foolish husband, goes, well, that's a great idea, wife. I think I'll do that, right? So he marries his maid, his wife's maid, has a kid, and says, I fixed the problem. Actually, it caused even more problems today. 
Because even when Abram tried to do it himself, God says, no, no, that's, not even that's good enough. I got this. Genesis 15, 17, and 18 show us very clearly that God is a God who can be trusted when he says, I'm going to commit to do this. And then he goes forward and he fulfills it because if he doesn't, he invokes a self-curse on himself. Oh, wait, that's right. He already did that when Jesus came and suffered mortality and suffered separation and when the clutches of sin seemed to have him strangled on the cross and when darkness shrouded around him and when he took his last breath, I forget, he did do that. But he paid the price that couldn't be paid by us. And when he walks out of the grave, he goes, all right, I've just fulfilled your end of the covenant. You're in to die. And I just did that for you. The Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 15, 17, and 18 is the basis for the expectations that God's promises will be fulfilled. And so what's our response to this? I preach faster when people aren't in the room. Uh-huh. Here's our response. Is we recognize, because we had nothing to do with our salvation, God paved the way for all of it. He even had to knock on the heart to let us know we needed him. Then the only thing that we do is we recognize that God is worthy of all of our trust, that he's worthy of all of our adoration, and that he's worthy of all of our praise. That's it. Because there is nothing we can offer God in return to pay him back the end of the bargain that he he paid for us. He paid that price. And so our only response is worship. So I'm going to be 100% honest. It was really hard for me to cancel 9 o'clock service today. I'm just going to be 100% transparent because I am wrestling with this as I just go. So I'm not just going through um, the walk through the Bible with all of you, but I'm also, for the entire year, I'm walking through the book of Hebrews, like deep, deep, intense study in, in the book of Hebrews, which is just so fascinating. And I'm just so convicted by how we have lessened the commitment level in America to Christ. We've just watered it down. And I think the reason we do that is because we think we're more special than we are. And we think that we've done more than we've actually done. And the reality is that I never did anything to deserve God's forgiveness. I don't deserve anything for me to have breath right now. I didn't do anything to deserve having four beautiful girls at home watching right now. I didn't deserve any of that. And so when the only response is this, is that you're worthy of my trust, you're worthy of my praise, you're worthy of my adoration, then all of a sudden, when we understand just what it took for God to pay the entire thing of the covenant then all of a sudden I start looking at how I respond and how I, how I, how I segment my life or how I, how I organize my life. I start looking at it differently. And I start asking myself questions like, like if I wake up on Sunday mornings, and I don't have this option because I'm up here on stage, but say I woke up on Sunday morning and I have a scratchy throat and I go, well, you know what? I can just stay at home. And I'm not dogging people who are staying home today. I'm just, just I'm throwing out how I've been processing this. 
you know, or, oh, I stubbed my toe and it just really hurts. Or I do this. And I've been asking myself this question, like how I've been processing is just Joey, would you go to work on Monday? Would you go to work on Monday? Would you still send your kids to school on Monday? Would you still do the rest, everything else in your life, would you still do it regardless? Now, granted, I know that there are moments where you just have to stop. I I understand that, okay? Would I still move forward with my life? And if the answer is yes, then I have to ask myself the question. And it's the same question I would throw out to everyone who's watching in here today. But are you willing to stop what's actually the most important thing? Because if that's the case, I have to tell you, we don't really comprehend who we are in Christ and how he deserves everything. And that's just how it is. And so if I'm 16 days into Bible reading and I I haven't even thought once to myself, I should crack open God's word and read it. That's a problem. That's that's, that's a problem because that's a heart issue. That's a heart issue. Because at the very basis Our desire should be to want to know our Savior who gave gave us his all. We should want to know him more. And this is how we know him more. And if I can't even get some kind of umption to to read this, then there's a fundamental flaw in my heart. If, If I find every excuse under the sun not to come together corporately, and for, let's just throw the pandemic out. Let's just forget about COVID. Even before COVID, if we could come up with every excuse under the sun not to be in worship because something else, we, we have a fundamental flaw at the heart. It's an issue. And I think for me, the reason that this is so important is that when I understand that God took on both sides of the curse and he says it's not dependent upon you, that makes me want to praise him more. Because I now I realize, man, I would be a, I'd be a, up a creek without a paddle if he wouldn't have done that for me. I'd be up a creek without a paddle. And so my only response is this. I trust you because you've proven yourself to be trustworthy. And now I give you my praise and my adoration. And how do I do that? I literally center my life around you. Not that I'm going to be perfect with it, but I want to center my life. And I want to prioritize things. I want to prioritize how I parent my kids around this. I want to prioritize how I love my spouse around this. I want to prioritize what kind of church member I am around this. I want to prioritize how I do with my day around this. I want to prioritize everything around this knowledge that he is the only one that is worthy of all adoration and praise in my life and everything else becomes secondary because that's the only response that I can come up with when we look in scripture it's the only response that I can see that Jesus was looking for he had thousands of people following him at, at the peak of his ministry and then he began to say things like well you got to drink my blood and you got to eat my flesh and people looked at him and they were like we, we got to bounce and they left in droves thousands of people walked away and he was left to his, his 12 disciples. And he says, are you guys leaving too? And they're like, well, we don't have anywhere else to go. You're the son of God. And Jesus has said, all right, well, let's not go chase after them. Let's keep going. Let's keep going. And I just want to know, is my life characterized more like the thousands that walked off when it got hard? Or like the 12 that said, I'm going to stick with you. And that's where your pastor is wrestling with. <laughs> As I read Genesis 15, as I study Hebrews, as I go through the Bible again, just like you guys are chronologically, what does your life say? 
And maybe the reason it doesn't say what the things that I've said this morning is because maybe you need to rethink and you need to have a heart check. Because when the heart's changed, everything changes. I want to pray for you guys. Father, I come to you in the mighty name of Jesus. Oh, Father, such heavy truth this morning. Such heavy truth in the fact that we have zero to do with our salvation. We have zero to do with paying a price that we could not pay, which made it so critical, God, that you took on the curse of a broken covenant. And Father, I, I have to believe that at least in this room, this morning, that everyone in this room, they are born-again believers. They've asked Jesus into their heart. I don't know about everyone that's watching online this morning. But God, I pray that we would look at our priorities. And we begin to examine everything that we do through the lens of this truth that God has done it all. And that when we respond to the fact that God has done it all, and we ask Jesus into our, our hearts, we ask for the forgiveness of our sins, not because we're good people, because God loved us enough to send his son to do that for us. That then we begin to prioritize everything in our lives around that. And we start to say, it doesn't matter if I'm tired. I'm going to crack open God's word tonight. It doesn't matter if I have to wake up earlier. I'm going to crack open God's word this morning doesn't matter if I stub my toe on Saturday. If I would be at work on Monday, I'm going to be at church on Sunday. doesn't matter if I want to throw a fit and get so angry. I'm supposed to be exhibiting the qualities of the Spirit. And so we would allow you to work in our hearts to be able to shape us look more like your son whatever it is in our life, that we would say, you are worthy of all adoration and all praise. And because of that, I strive to shape everything that I do around that. And so with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, and I'm sure at home your kids are going crazy by now, but adults, I really want you to listen very carefully this morning. I want to first talk to those that say, you know what, I know I'm a believer but maybe my priority is a little bit of a whack right now. I would ask you to have that honest conversation with the Lord and to say, why is this the way that it is? And ask him to reveal the true intentions of your heart. Because the root issue is not the fact that you're busy. It's not the fact that your kids are in a thousand different sports. It's not the fact that you don't have time. It's a heart issue. It always has been. And so I'd ask that if you're a believer, if you're a Christian, that you would ask him to reveal to you the true intentions of your heart. And that you would repent, which simply means turn away from the thing that's putting all your priorities out of whack. Now, if you're listening this morning and you would say, I, I never knew that I was broken. I never knew that I needed to be saved. 
Well, guess what? Today, the day is the day that the Holy Spirit knocks on your heart and says, I'm here. Not because you're good, not because you deserve it, because I loved you that much. Today could be the day of salvation. Today can be the day where you confess, I'm a sinner. Believe that Jesus is the Son of God who's come to die on the cross for you and rose from the grave, proving himself to be victorious. And the day that you ask him to come be king of your heart. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day that your life could change forever. And then lastly, if you're in this room, you go, okay, you know what? I don't always get it right, but I do strive. Then this is what I would ask you to pray. The same prayer that I've been praying since January 1 of 2022 this year. God, would you give me the strength to sustain me as I strive to bring you honor and glory in my life? And just pray that he would hold you up he would carry you. So whichever boat boat you're in, some whacked up priorities, you need saving, or you just need strength to sustain you, spend some time alone with the Lord. Thanks again for listening to this message. For more information about South Lakes Church, go to slchurch.life.